Hello, and welcome to Deep Impact, a proud member of the Diff Network, where we dive deep into Arbo's most nocturnal work five years on. Coming up next is Elliot Diebold. And that was Ruben Morehouse. And we are back to talk about CineDA 14.5. Um, you can really feel the tension ra- ra- ratcheting up in this chapter, huh? Um, so Blake and Evan are flying around and, you know, chilling, having a good... F- fun flying time until they uh, basically inadvertently run aqua- across the uh, the evil vultures from the jungle book mm, yep uh, uh, yep um yeah it's I a mean, reference God. yeah sorry uh yeah i haven't seen it um we i, I mean I, I i guess i wouldn't call it that inadvertently evan tells blake that to get ready um, that's true evan, evan knows just, what's up yeah he just seems to really under or overestimate Blake's capability to handle it is how Blake phrases it <laughs> later. Um, yes, but yeah, obviously a lot of this chapter I, I feel like is just setting up how Mara's this this whole forest is. Yeah, and I, I love the way that we even establish right at the start here the skies aren't safe because you're going to get a bunch of zombified birds coming at you, and that also very quickly establishes the whole idea that nature will. Well, nature has been twisted to serve her purposes in this area, I, I would sort of say, with these birds. Yeah, um, it, it, it reminds me of, um, and it kind of feels like it's paralleling a bit, uh, Johannes' domain, which is a bit more, you know, modern version of this, um, where it's explicitly his. But it's very clear that Mara has, uh, has, has her influence across this entire forest. I, I, I would actually say, for me, I'd compare it more to conquest's domain mm. or um even poses area when he was affected yeah. like those obviously aren't very charitable uh comparisons like so sorry mara but <laughs> to like, the hag yeah know, yeah um but you know the idea of it, it, she's just done the human equivalent of, of stay in this area for so long that you've kind of leaked your essence onto it and yeah i mean for her that's not as simply defined as like a conquering energy or a um uh, like inverting the natural order energy but but like, i think it's the same idea where it's not it's not like a domain where she just kind of magically shortcutted to own it but she's just mm. leaked her own essence into it so much that it effectively conspires to work with her yeah yeah you're right i like the idea of thinking about it as analogous to a conquest domain right um but the interesting thing is mm. it seems that it's not magical essence that is leaking out it's just her time and patience uh getting to know it and working it uh mechanically working it to her advantage i mean i i think it, you know a little of column a a little sure. of column b um yeah. you know it's it's packed it's both um but yeah you're right there's just as much <coughs> that we'll get into that establishes that she doesn't always resort to magical means to set this place up to serve her will yeah um there's this fun little beat at the start of this chapter where uh blake kind of recognizes these birds really quickly and distinguishes them by their calls which evan rightfully <laughs> calls out is a bird is makes him a bird nerd yeah uh, which yeah. is very true <laughs> i love the idea as well that granny rose was like now what do we do with this bird nerd knowledge i guess we'll give it to blake i mean i guess i i don't want to assume that the granny rose pieced together every single detail of uh ross that that like mm. she may have just given Barbatorum some sort of general policies to go with. Um, sure. I, I mean, 
Uh, the other idea that this sort of spurred in me was Blake is so obsessed with like freedom and breaking the rules, you know, fighting the system kind of thing. Like he, he doesn't want to be tied down. And yeah. I think that, that like a good practitioner kind of does because then you get a domain and stuff, right? Yeah. So I, I like the idea that, you know, Blake's obsession with freedom is something that she wouldn't have wanted Rose to have. And maybe mm. that's tied too, like, too tightly with the idea of the bird love. Like, yeah, because because birds as a symbol represent that freedom of movement, and, and and so especially to Blake, and so like I wonder if those two things kind of came part and parcel just because of them being so closely aligned symbolically. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, as a kind of uh, representation, a kind of symbolic impact representation of the fact that Blake, you know, loves freedom, and this is exemplified a lot by birds through his tattoos and Evan. So why not also have bird knowledge? It makes sense. Yeah, I mean, demons can't create, so presumably, unless the spirits gave it to him, the bird knowledge was already there, but I like, like, Barbatorum, if he didn't have explicit instructions to that detail, he may have just associated it with freedom and stuff, and that might not be in, you know, Rose's design spec. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I also want to touch on something Evan seeds here um with the, this idea that he's been talking to all those sort of lesser spirits and and stuff around town like we saw him converse with the uh the really mean cats that were ancient greeks a couple of arcs ago now more yep. than a couple of arcs ago um and i i don't quite know why i've latched onto this idea so much but it just seems like a really good thing that evan's been running around and kind of making friends i guess yeah like... it, it also indicates that he's just had time to like or maybe not even time, but he's just kind of had his own little adventures, right? The scenes where he was off scouting ahead, for example, he might have run across one of these Greek cats and just had a bit of a chat with them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, definitely a bit of distance from Blake right now wouldn't be the most unhealthy thing forever. <laughs> um, and yeah, I don't know. Like, it's just in a world, and particularly in a time in Jacob's Bell where connections are so important... It, it just feels like a good thing that Evan's been running around kind of do, doing that. Uh, I was, mm. so I don't know. Maybe this won't go anywhere. Like, I've just sort of latched onto what's like two sentences. Uh, but it just felt like a really good thing that Evan is doing this. And it, even if it goes nowhere, it's still nice to know that he was doing it. Yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah, it, it's a it's a smart play, right? It's good work by Evan. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> um, so Blake and Evan uh, eventually decide to run away from these turkey vultures and other miscellaneous birds that are pursuing them, uh, but they're obviously a bit outmatched in the flying department. Um, and these birds eventually catch up and start swarming Blake, uh, which forces him and Evan to basically just suicide dive into the trees and bushes below to escape. Um, yeah, you said like the turkey vultures and stuff, but, um, it's also some of them are crows and, you know, yes. maybe, maybe Corviday just got some bits in before, uh, <laughs> before finding yeah. Tiff. Is it foreshadowing or Corviday's actually just taking <laughs> yeah. the opportunity to be a dick? <laughs> oh, I'm undercover. I have to do this. It doesn't really hurt you. Like I can yeah. totally see him making that excuse. <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Um, I mean, yeah, but like this whole thing with the birds kind of you know, swarming him, basically. Um, Blake compares it to Pooh's, and, like, I, I agree. I don't know, there's something about the swarming that is very horrifying, like, all the little things attacking you all over. Mm. Like, you know, Evan keeps talking about how, oh, it's okay, they can't snatch you up like they could him, but it's like, for Blake, it's worse, because with that number, you can't defend yourself on all sides. Yeah, um, and we see this in action, because these birds uh, do the exact same thing that Blake did to the dragon, which is they, they uh, claw at his sweatshirt wings uh, to, to 
make him not be able to fly anymore. Which is obviously, yeah. it's a great strategy. Um, it's the exact strategy that Blake used on the dragon, <laughs> and he kind of realizes immediately that the birds are going to do this to him, and he can't really stop them. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right. It, 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 we, we talked about this last episode, and you sort of mentioned maybe it was setting up um, that Blake had this vulnerability, and that seems like exactly what it did. Like, he he was the little bird attacking the big dragon's wings last chapter and now he's basically having that done to him about 15 minutes later probably not even that long um it's it's a great little uh inversion on on the fight from last chapter yes um and so blake and evan go down to the the forest floor and and this forest is really fun it kind of reminds me uh stylistically of the swamp from avatar the last airbender which is that the the trees like feel like they are watching blake in a very real way um walls seem to pop up in front of blake without him realizing like it's it's a very uh, classic spooky setting yeah but but it's different in that way that like it's like in, in avatar it kind of felt like the swamp was a hive mind or yeah um individual trees were alive in this one it, it's just they're just trees um and it's just like it it almost feels more to me like reality distorts to make things not work for you like like yeah i'm I'm not under the impression that you know the forest was able to grow in such a way that it's like oh 50 years from now this is going to get in blake's way um or or that you know it's just in general trying to get in the way from that angle it almost just feels like like it's sort of you know you you blink or whatever and things have just rearranged reality has just sort of moved itself and that's sort of how the spirits work i think yeah and and now suddenly it's just inconvenient for you because you're not mara i i kind of feel like it is mara having tended this forest over hundreds or thousands of years kind of has made it hostile like Mm. oh okay well i I imagine if there's birds flying through here i'll make these trees so they kind of grow into a wall of trees if they come from this direction and then in you know 30 years that is realized and that's just kind of the scale of the uh, the fuckery that she does <laughs> yeah maybe i i was sort of working off the assumption that it's not like it's like if you had been there or if mara is there one week the trees would just sort of be normal and then you come back a week later mm. as blake and it's just sort of like now the trees are just in the way and they didn't move but also they did like i, I it's that yeah. mind bendy shit like the the library in the house is sort of kind of how i'm what i'm comparing it to yeah okay. um uh, it's like if if a if a tree gets in the way in the woods and no one's there to see it, did did it move? <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Um, yeah, that makes sense. Look, we don't get a confirmation either way, so uh, no, it, no. It, it could be anything <laughs> along this kind of spectrum. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, Blake uh, crashes himself into enough trees, basically, that the birds give up, um, and then they start to uh, move <laughs> towards the others, uh, the others or the others, depending on which ones we're talking about. Mm. Um, and as he moves towards them, uh, he and Evan come across a clearing, which they can kind of feel is a trap. Uh, and Evan seems very certain of it, where Blake just has this kind of gut sense. But they both uh, feel it enough to, to be quite wary. Fuck Evan's useful. Um, <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I enjoyed this, this little puzzle, because it's so instantly set up as like, okay, this this is a trap. I, I never questioned uh that this was a trap and so it's it's fun kind of watching them try to figure out what it is mm, yeah yeah it's a weird trap as well right uh, i guess we'll get to that in a second um blake and evan have this chat where evan thinks blake is good at fighting and blake kind of uses the vultures to demonstrate that he's not really good at fighting like he can't learn how to do a roundhouse kick all he can really do is uh 
continue to fight. That's his real skill, is he doesn't stop fighting. Yeah, I like how he phrases it as scrapping, because that's definitely how Blake always feels. He's, yeah. he, he's almost, well, maybe there were some bits in Arc 13, but it, it doesn't ever really feel like he's, you know, leading the charge and using his mad sword skills. He's always just, like, panickingly stabbing shit with the hyena, you know? Like, it's, it's it comes from a place of, oh god, I need to survive another 30 seconds, not... <laughs> not like a oh you know this this blow will yeah i'll use my, my secret foe. technique yeah, yeah. <laughs> um i love the word scrapping as well because in so many ways blake is scrap like he is yes. literal scrap um so the word scrapping has some really fun meetings there yeah i mean he even talks about how he he you know he can't roundhouse kick and i was thinking like i could actually see it in this world blake learning martial arts or learning aerial combat could almost hurt him in a way mm. because he's thing that he is very well established with the spirits inside and around him is that he scraps yeah and if he you know learnt to fight he might sort of weaken that that thing that gives him strength yeah if he actually had definitive wins that would probably be problematic because this whole thing is i keep going until <laughs> i've worn down my opponent and then i yes. cut their head off with the hyena i mean and he talks some more about this at the end of the chapter, like, I think this is setting us up for the train of thought he has at the end of the chapter. So, um, we'll, we'll touch on it when we get there, I guess. Yeah. Um, so yeah, back to this trapped clearing. Uh, they're kind of trying to suss it out. And eventually Evan is quite instrumental in realizing uh, that there's less snow in certain parts than others. Um, Blake recognizes tracks that indicate Mara has been here. Uh, and so Blake kind of triggers this trap, which ends up triggering a bunch of falling trees, um, which is a weird trap. Yeah, it's triggered safely, so good job, Blake. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty thorough. Like, it even has a contingency log to try and catch some of the people who can dodge the main three trees yeah. that fall down. Yeah, and now I want to talk about this trap because it's it's, it's really weird, right? Like, it, it gives me this, like, fucking Ewok vibe, right, where Mara... <laughs> uh, I don't know if Mara actually sees herself like this, but she is the outsider, and that kind of she's kind of like the resistance against the modernization of, of magic. Um, and she just is living in her forest, uh, setting up weird tree traps that actually don't use magic. They're just kind of mechanical. Um, it's really weird. And it's a really different vibe because, you know, Mara is just doing like you imagine that she might've set one of those traps where you dig a hole and put leaves over it and wait until someone falls in. (laughs) Yeah. It does seem like the very long-term equivalent. I mean, something that Blake points out as the trees are falling is that they look like trees that are probably a hundred years old, Yeah, which again, really, really enforces this idea of how long-term and committed uh, Mara is to this shit. Like she's um, got traps set up with hundred year old trees, which sort of implies to me that she's, um, you know she's expecting to be here in a hundred years to do more of this i guess um yeah yeah like it's it it is so mundane but at the same time i think it's something she can do so easily because this place is hers like i i don't know this reinforces the ownership well not quite ownership the the presence she has in these woods yeah um in a way that complements like all the more magical stuff like the way the trees just grow to get in your way or the you know skinned vultures and stuff it's um she she's so much a part of this that she's also just set up like you know boy scout plus plus traps yeah i I kind of want to say that she's like nurtured this forest but that's too wholesome of a word she's like (laughs) Um, evil nurtured it i don't know what the word is she's she's shaped it (laughs) yes exactly um yeah it's really interesting Uh, it's an interesting vibe 
Um, anyway, so with this trap safely diffused, uh, Blake and Evan rejoin the others, and Roxanne is starting to freak out a bit at, at uh, justifiably, because, <laughs> you know, this is her first night in yeah. this world, um, and it's not <laughs> a great one. Uh, um, and so she's freaking out, and Peter delivers one of his uh, patented monologues to her, basically imploring <laughs> for her to not be such a shit. And it works, of course, because Peter's awesome. I don't know if imploring is the right word for yeah, what sure. he does. Because <laughs> it's like, he, he he doesn't really ever... He just goes off on a tangent about how shit every Thorburn is, but she's kind of the most efficient shit. Well, they're all and, shit, but she's the most harmful shit one. Yeah, you know? and I mean, like... I, I got to like I got to agree with him here. This is one of those ones where I was like, yeah, I get how this is comforting. Like him basically yeah. saying, "Hey, you're the most violent, and you know, like, right now, like, good for you." Yeah. Well, but also, uh, like, what he basically says is, being a Thorburn comes with a lot of power, and you need to learn to direct that power of being shit at the right targets. <laughs> yeah, you're right. He doesn't really tell her to stop. He just tells her to like change direction. He's like, "Hey, yes. keep being like shit." Just, like, don't just turn not to towards us. your allies, yeah. you know, be shit to the enemies. And, like, yeah. I guess that's something Roxanne can get behind. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's so good. Like, he, he perfectly gets through to Roxanne. And we every time this happens, we see how effective Peter is at uh, not manipulating, but, like, getting through to people, I guess. And maybe it is manipulating, but it's manipulating in a, a kind of transparent way. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I don't know. I guess you got to... I, like the the connotation of the word manipulate to me like isn't as good for something that maybe is genuinely mutually beneficial like i think mm. it is better for him and roxanne and everyone else in this group that she you know point her violent tendencies outwards so like manipulate feels like the wrong word to me because it's uh, like that kind of has a sense of tricking you into doing something whereas that that's not what he's doing he's just yeah. kind of helping her see that it's not what it, well this helps everyone um i don't know uh i i just but you're right i enjoy peter as the fuckwit whisperer um like we, we saw him do it a lot before and it's good to see him doing it again yeah yeah totally um I, it's i think it's my favorite bits of pact is <laughs> is peter being like perfect at dealing with the situation <laughs> i mean what's funny is he sort of he's he sells himself as this or and, and he's been sold to us as this person who can read people like apparently, what he what he's good at is sort of figuring people out and, and yeah. using that. But what we've mostly seen it pointed towards so far is Thorburns and, and some other like shit people, and maybe that's just the crowd that we've gotten to see yeah. interact with. Who else would he interact with? <laughs> uh, but it does it does kind of feel like he's almost set up as someone who is great at dealing with the the worst of the worst. Um, like mm. he, he's someone he's just who, kind of who, learned who give, how to yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, like, obviously, you know, Thorburn's, a, he had lots of prime pickings, but yeah. uh, he he seems like someone who's, like, when you got, like, someone who's potentially very problematic, like Roxanne, you give them the Peter and he can help, like, realise what's going to get them helping themselves and everyone else. Yeah, yeah. Um, A-plus work, Peter. Um, <laughs> I, I think it's worth pointing out off the back of this conversation as well that... Oh, sorry, I, I just, actually... Oh, sorry, yeah. I, I also do want to state... I think part of the reason Peter is so good at uh, understanding fuckwits is because he also is one. Wait, that does just yeah, need to of be course. said. <laughs> he, he definitely is. Um, no, but I, I kind of want to point out again, Rose definitely got the shittier team here. Um, <laughs> like, Roxanne was the weak link on this team, and she's already, like, picked up an arsenal of weapons to use. <laughs> yeah, that reveal that she's just fucking... 
like equipped with most of Eva's stuff is very cool. Yeah. Um, I really want to see her apprentice with Eva. I've, I know I've been saying that forever, but it just needs to happen. Yeah, no, it would be good. Um, one more thing on this Peter and Roxanne conversation, which is Blake, it ends with, with Peter uh, saying, come on to Roxanne, which Blake thinks sounds like a disappointed parent in the tone that he says it. And then mm. Blake thinks on it for a second and realizes, oh, wait, that actually might be what get, helps get through to Roxanne. And it, it kind of, again, just emphasizes like, Blake doesn't even realize how effective Peter is being until he kind of reflects on it. And it gives me this vibe that also Peter is kind of, in some ways, accidentally playing into exactly the right words that he needs to. He's just such a natural at getting people on side, getting shit people to direct their shitness in the right way. Yeah, I, I'd describe him as like a natural talent where I, I agree he's maybe putting some of these effects on subconsciously. Uh, like he's not he's not actively thinking, oh, and I need to say these next words in this sort of tone to be more effective. It's just like he that's sort of his instincts. Um, and, you know, Blake's not going to criticize anyone for following their instincts, I hope. <laughs> yeah i would hope not um so the party uh, is back together now and they realize that the the falling tree trap wasn't the only trap there's also uh what is referred to as a guardian a spirit guarding this forest which approaches them and almost immediately starts killing blake um yeah well good thing we know it's a guardian thanks to yep. uh jez's crew very um, helpful yeah really glad really glad we keep bringing them around they seem very helpful <laughs> Um, um well yeah we'll get to that i have they are helpful in one specific way which i'll talk about later um but there's this bit where uh green eyes is kind of trying to identify this thing and she calls it as feeling like the blackfish which is such a great way to set mm. up the vibe that we're meant to have because that immediately means okay it's enigma- enigmatic it's bad whatever it is it's yeah. going to target the worst parts of us um and we don't understand it and and that's all we really need to know for this bad spirit, right? Yeah, I, I mean, you're right. It sets it up as such an, not just a threat physically, but something that feels like it's attacking them emotionally. Mm. Um, because you know, the, the fact that it feels like the, the blackfish, but less personal, just sends up this sense of this thing just emanates bad vibes. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and so this thing is strangling Blake and nobody is able to do anything like every attack they try is completely ineffectual just faces through it until suddenly our hero our champion corvide comes in and immediately kills this spirit and it's Mm -hmm. so strange like corvide (laughs) just busts in and immediately murders this thing which was completely unaffected by any previous attacks and it just it's so it just makes me so uneasy how (laughs) easily corvide beat this um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, he's both the hero Blake needs and the hero Blake deserves. Um, <laughs> Harsh. It, it, you're right, he sort of literally swoops in and yeah. saves the day so easily to the point where you're kind of like, was this all Something's a going setup? on here, yeah, it feels <laughs> like a setup to me. Um, um and, and, and even then, um, he, he just kind of, like, like, the astral thing set up is, is sort of so untouchable, and Corviday can just touch it and everyone's like oh glad he's on our side and it's playing off this dramatic yeah. irony because we know even more than blake how attached corviday and mara are yes so coming in and setting up corviday is powerful is great because it both sets up for us the dread that we realize they're going to be like oh good thing we've got corviday and also we're like oh shit corviday is really powerful isn't he like this is even worse that he's yeah. essentially against them here yeah um and i like the way blake deals with corviday because he's so clearly 
not jazzed that he's here. <laughs> um, Corvade comes in and says, I live to serve. And Blake turns his back on him and says, yeah, that sounds like it sucks. And just keeps walking. <laughs> like, it's fucking stone cold. I love it. I, I love this little exchange on, on so many levels. Because it's just, like, you can just picture how how this is affecting both of them. Particularly Corvade. Um, I mean, especially because, like, there are ways these two are actually quite similar. I mean, obviously, Bird bird symbolism aside yeah uh they share they kind of share views on you know the the current world order of pact uh there's actually like kind of a lot i think these two could agree on um but neither one's really looking to sympathize with the other yeah um yeah that's interesting i wonder what what the avenue is to get them to a place of being genuinely allies, or if that's even possible for Corvday. Like, yeah, can he even yeah, have I... a relationship that he doesn't corrupt? I don't know. Well, I mean, he seems to be going all right with Mara. Well, true, true. Uh, well, we'll see, I guess. <laughs> well, he had the he had the hair ring on his finger, so I'm still assuming they're married or whatever the equivalent is. Mm, yeah. Um, so the group continue on with Corvaday, uh, bringing up the rear, which is a fact that makes Blake very <laughs> nervous. Um, uh, and they're kind of talking about Mara, um, when suddenly she's just there, uh, Corvaday <laughs> in the back, Mara in the front, and Mara turns to them, uh, and it's clear that things are about to get very hostile. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Blake has kept it to himself that he knows Corvaday and Mara have something, because he saw that abyss vision of yes Corvaday smiling at Mara um and in fact he actually goes on this sort of thought tangent thinking you know everything the abyss has shown me was for a reason what like did it show me that for a reason which feels kind of like bonkers if if it's right because that's mm. that's an incredible amount of foresight yeah by the abyss if it was for this specific moment maybe like the abyss might have just been playing the numbers and maybe knew that this might come up or um I, I don't know I have to believe that I can't believe that the abyss is is that clever and, and sees, like, sees that far ahead and yeah. it's um that it could have picked this that long ago yeah and, and the other thing to keep in mind is even if it is uh it, yes sure it's for a reason but that doesn't mean it's for a reason that is helpful to you blake <laughs> <laughs> yeah true um yeah i mean well, it's interesting blake decides not to share the information that he knows that corvette is not on their side for now um mm. he's keeping that to himself uh we'll see how that works out um but yeah and I, I could see Corvaday and the Abyss not getting along, to be honest. Like, didn't yeah. didn't Corvaday kind of go into the Abyss and steal his name or whatever? Like, I think I'd have to go back and read his little interlude section, but there's a bit where he talks about dipping into the Abyss, and I wonder if maybe he uh, he took more than he gave and the Abyss mm. harbors a little grudge. Mm. Maybe. I don't recall. Um, but, yeah, anyway, after Blake has all these thoughts about Corvaday and, and whether the Abyss has been manipulating this relationship for so long... Um, he then thinks back to some of the discussions that have already happened this chapter, and he thinks, um, my pattern, my last ditch measure, fight, scrap, push forward, my last ditch measure, every step of the way, had been to sacrifice a little bit of myself on the course to winning the fight. I wouldn't make it to the end of this if I kept it up. And um, mm. so, you know, Blake, Blake wins the battle like the Never Award right here. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I got these cool wings. <laughs> Uh, but I think this is really interesting, like moving forward into uh, this uh, confrontation, I, I assume, with Mara next chapter. Um, Blake has sort of identified his pattern in, throughout yeah. this chapter, which was I scrap and, and I lose a bit of myself. 
And now he's sort of saying maybe he does need to break that pattern. Yeah. And we're set up in this battlefield where I think it's very likely he will lose any confrontation. They sort of say that at the end of the chapter. If we turn this into a confrontation, we're we're done skis. Mm. So he's... I think we're setting up this really interesting thing where I think Blake is going to have to try and outwit uh, Mara and Corviday, perhaps, you know, using words or something, Mm. uh, rather than the more traditional route of... Give up some flesh. Yeah, exactly. Just sacrifice a bit of yourself to win the fight. Like, I think I get the impression that's what's being set up here is a fight of a different sort. Um, and that's going to be really fun because Mara's an enemy of a very different sort too. Yes. Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, it's, it's a good thing to keep uh, our finger on because obviously Blake refused to sacrifice for his wings as well. Um, so it's clear that this is a trend that is being set up of Blake saying, no, I'm not going to be this sacrificial lamb anymore. Yeah. Is it the sacrificial lamb when you're the one doing most of the sacrificing? Yeah, true. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the self-sacrificial lamb. Um, yeah. So yeah, this is this is a, a a chapter that's all about building up the tension for this showdown with Mara, and I'm so here for it. Like, mm. I love the way that when you fight a new practitioner, and Mara isn't a practitioner, but she's you know analogous to one. It's so much yeah. about there's so much that goes into setting up the ambience for their style, right? The Duchamps, we had this when we were in Johannes's domain. We had this for conquest. We had this so much, and it's like you the, you get these early chapters where you're stepping through their territory and starting to understand them through their surroundings and then you get the showdown and it's such a great way to set up the type of thing that they are it's always it's always so good yeah i i completely agree like this chapter did did two things in my eyes it established this this pattern with blake and and the fact that he maybe is looking to break from it a little bit uh and it really heavily established the Mara is just an intrinsic part of this forest. Like, yeah. Like, I wonder if the line between Mara and this forest is even that distinct. Mm. Um, it's going to be very fun to sort of see how this conflict arises. Like, as, as you said, it's established her as just, yeah, like such a kind of formidable foe because they're on her turf. Yeah. Um, there's one other thing that this chapter does, which I like, which is it's starting to set up this thing of Blake being really good at reacting to the danger sense of the other others in his group, like the Satyr and the Maenad specifically, Blake will basically react to their reactions and it leads to him reacting to things so much faster. It's just a cool little recurring beat that I've noticed. I don't know what it yeah. is going to lead to, but it's just very <laughs> cool. Yeah, there was a bit in the Dragon chapter I don't think we actually pulled out where um, Blake notices like Jez's crew and Green Eye react to something yeah. the dragon is or they just react and he doesn't even look to confirm what it is he just instantly dives and brings like peter and roxanne with him or something yeah um it gives you this sense of how he's he's sort of starting to get good at utilizing the strengths of the people around him um yeah, yeah definitely. I, I don't know i, I um, agree it, it, it is it is starting to feel like he's he's taking advantage of some of these uh abilities that the other others around him have yeah it's good that he's i mean he's kind of always been defined by being a sort of pokemon trainer of sorts <laughs> um and it's cool to see that being maintained even as he changes so much <laughs> yeah yeah um that's the end of cine da 14.5 uh, but not the end of our episode yet, because it's time to take a look at what people were saying when this chapter first came out five years ago uh, with a with a comment dive. Uh, so let's mm-hmm. dive into some comments. Elliot, do you want to talk about one? Yeah, sure. Uh, so I, I picked out one. Um, it started off with uh, a comment by Glassware, who 
uh, you know, just pointed out something that we've obviously talked about, which is how fucked up it is that Evan is so okay with with Blake's murdering. Um, a bit in this chapter that we kind of skipped over is a bit where uh, Peter says Roxanne is a very good monster, and Evan is like, "Ah, oh, Blake's a really good monster. He murdered a bunch of people really well." Uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, Glassware sort of points out that, um, hey, but this is not okay. Yeah, is that um, a good thing to be proud of? Yeah, and, and and some of the responses to this kind of uh got got my mind turning. Like, uh, Nick zero twelve thousand um points out, you know, Evan Evan plays video games, and maybe he associates Blake as you know the hero in the video game who kills all the the monsters and that sort of thing. Like, like Evan has obviously talked a lot of times about the video games he plays having um you know supernatural bad guys that need to be killed um and it, it just this just sort of thing got me thinking like we know evan has sort of been deteriorating for a long time uh without his familiar connection to blake and i just wonder if maybe he is losing his grip on reality a bit i i don't know um like if this is if his acceptance of all this stuff is a symptom of him starting to fall apart basically yeah interesting yeah, could be. I mean, or it's, I don't know if we, it has to be him falling apart and it could just be, he is very young and he doesn't, he kind of isn't mature enough to process the world in, in certain ways, but yeah, I do I mean, like that, the idea that it could be an extension of that into him literally losing his grip on reality. Yeah. I mean, so that was something a bunch of other commenters started talking about was this idea that um, like children kind of look to the other people to start developing their moral yes. compass in a lot of ways and uh maybe blake is not the person that evan should be looking up how to. dare <laughs> you say that <laughs> um, um yeah i mean yeah it, it, I, wait and i mean that could be sort of another angle on this whole thing like like evan's whole thing kind of is that he doesn't like to let go of stuff and it, it's like his insistence on holding on to blake as someone who is good and that he should look up to is maybe like his big failure or something that's going to come mm. back to bite both of them in the ass because because in a lot of ways blake has kind of been looking to evan as someone like yeah you know, Blake, blake's been turning to evan as like this you know oh what what is good and what is right and uh, yeah you know maybe maybe you shouldn't do that to a seven-year-old who <laughs> is dead no <laughs> um not anyway, just dead um, he's a bird and a kid <laughs> yeah um so what have you brought um i put out a comment by a, a user called sherm um and this is a, a just a fact for all the bird nerds out there um <laughs> there are a few comments talking about like oh it's so cool that mara's uh mara's enhanced these turkey vultures because they're able to fly without really flapping their wings um and sherm comes in with the bird facts which is actually turkey vultures mostly use thermals to gain altitude which is perfect because it's just a nice bird fact that you can learn through this story. But also, it's such a perfect mirror, again, of Blake fighting against the dragon and needing to use the heat from the fires to fly. Like, yeah, what, a great little, yeah. what a great little link between them again. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, like, obviously there was probably some magic there because there's no thermal winds in this forest right now. Whoa, I can pretty whoa, much whoa. guarantee you. How dare um, you? <laughs> but uh, no, you're right. Uh, like, considering how much we already talked about that attack on Blake mirroring what he did to the dragon last chapter, um, I think that's probably a, a very subtle uh, other way that this is meant to mirror it. Yeah. Um, which begs the question, of course, who will be the giant that Blake uh, purchased in the hand of? <laughs> I mean, Evan, I, th I think. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Evan holds out his arm and Blake just I mean, lands on it nicely. It's a more metaphorical perching, but, uh, uh, okay. but yeah. 
<laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, anyway, that's the end of, of our episode discussing CineDA 14.5, uh, but it's not the end of our podcast yet. Uh, if you are interested in the end of our podcast, then you should check out the announcement video we did for All Packed Up and leave us your, your ideas on what you'd like to see for it. Mm-hmm. Um, also remember we're actually running a Q and a right now. So, uh, answers to that, like, you know, don't need to be until the 21st of December or so. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, you got plenty of time, but if you have any questions for us, I guess that are packed related, probably, uh, we'll, we'll answer them if you send them in. Yep. We know everything about packed, even though we haven't even finished it yet. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yes, you can leave those in the discussion thread, uh, which will be linked down below or email them to us at mediamdpodcast at gmail.com or tweet them at us. We have a Twitter. It's at mediamdpodcast. You can do that too. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there are other shows on the Tooth Network you should check out. Uh, there's MediaMD, obviously. Um, but there's there's also some other great ones. Uh, one that <laughs> one that's uh, doing very well right now is Do the Right Thing, uh, which of course is a you know group creative writing. Uh, I don't know what to call it. Group creative writing podcast. Yeah, okay, that'll do. <laughs> um, I was looking for another word before, between podcast and, and writing, but uh, yeah, uh, Do the Right Thing is actually running a contest now, uh, which is really cool. So they. They've got a sort of contest where you edit uh, a, anything that you write between a couple of weeks ago and January and just sort of touch it up, keep it under the do the right thing word limit. And uh, there's like some cash prizes and everything. So it's a, another incentive to kind of get involved in what's a really fun exercise anyway. Yeah. Um, uh, the reason we're able to offer cash prizes for stuff and do all kinds of cool contests is because of our patrons who uh, support us uh, both with love and money. Um, if you'd like to support us with love and money, head on over to patreon.com forward slash doofmedia to uh, become a patron and get access to a bunch of cool perks. Yes, and of course, it's a bit of a given that you uh, shower Wobbo with love uh, if you've made it this far into our podcast and packed, uh, but you should also shower him with some money if you can uh, mm-hmm. over at patreon.com forward slash Wobbo. Yes, um... And that's our episode, Uh, so we'll be back soon uh, for CineADA 14.6 on Monday the 16th of December. So we'll see you then. See ya.